Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do profess and proclaim that you are stronger and that Christ is stronger and that the spirit is stronger than the flesh. So, Lord, we thank you that we are saved all by your grace as the wonderful Trinity is involved in planning, accomplishing, and applying this great and wonderful salvation that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, today we uh, continue our series in the book of Genesis, and we see what God has to say about who we are. So we're looking here at the nature of man and his value. Last week we were sort of introduced to God, and today we are introduced to man according to what God has revealed. Over the next couple months we're going to be looking at the book of Genesis, and I'll take us all the way through the first week of March. Um, so I look forward to studying this uh, first 11 chapters with you over the next, few mo- next couple months here. The book of Genesis can be broken down into a couple portions, a couple parts. The first is primeval history, that is chapters 1 to 11. So if you're taking notes and you like figuring out how things break down, you have chapters 1 through 11, primeval history, and it covers four main events. That is the creation of man, the fall of man into sin, and then it covers Noah and the flood, and then the events surrounding the Tower of Babel. And then it moves on, so from chapters 12 to the very end, It covers patriarchal history. So here we're looking at the history of the fathers. Um, The first section is the history leading up to uh, the fathers, such as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So 12 to the end, um, they're examining and looking at those four lines there. So we find ourselves today in Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 to 31, studying the creation of man. And from our passage... We look at four main things about man. Number one, man is created by God. Number two, man is made in the image of God. Number three, man is charged by God. And then number four, man is provided for by God. I'll repeat those again. Man is created by God. Man is made in the image of God. Man is charged by God. And then man is provided for by God. So last week, again, we appropriately focused on... Um, the main subject of our passage. So go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And you see here the great headline of this chapter. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So He is our proper subject here. That we get the opportunity to examine and to wonder, ponder, and then eventually and eventually worship. And this... Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1 is a headline for what follows afterwards. So we saw that last week, in the six days of creation, the first three, God forms the world. And then the last three, so days, five, days 4, 5, and 6, God fills the world. So he readies the world to, for its inhabitants. And then the last half, God fills it with its inhabitants. Uh, so there he's forming and then filling in those two great parallel sections. That's days 1 to 3 and then days 4 to 6. Um, And today we focus on the last day where God fills the earth with man. And this brings us to our first point. Man is created by God. I'll go ahead and read our section today. Let's start in verse 24. And this is how the sixth day begins. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, 
and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Man here is the culmination, the crown of God's creation. And uh, the account here of creation reads beautifully and conveys just this. So if you look back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, it begins with these great sort of um, descriptions about what God is doing. It's, and God said, and then it goes on uh, seven more times, and God said, and God said, in verse 9, verse 11, and God said, and he repeats this all the way until the creation of man. So if you look there in 24, here's the beginning of the sixth day. He says, and God said, but then in 26, he changes things. There's a shift. It says, then God said. So even from the narrative, you can feel like things are really climaxing here at the creation of man. And then also, it's very interesting how it says here, after it talks about what God says, look back in verse 3, for example, it says, and God said, let there be light. Verse 6, same thing, and God said, let there be light. So we're invited here just to, to watch and observe what God is saying, and then as he says it, 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 it just happens. This is creation out of nothing. Same thing happens in verse 9, and God said, let the waters, and then it was so. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth, and it was so. And then it just continues to move on. But then go back to 26. Then God said, not simply let there be, but he says, let us make. Interesting, isn't it? Okay, so far we've been invited to just observe what God says and then how he just creates out of nothing. But then all of a sudden, in him saying, let us make. Automatically, our minds are drawn towards what we think, what it appears to be, this divine communication here going on. Divine deliberation. And then they move forward to make man in his very image. Then God said, let us make. And of course, God is um, he's making things according to their kind. I hope you noticed that as I, was, as I was reading it. So he makes, let's say, the fish of the, the sea. Fish, that generally means anything that lives in, under the ocean. 
And then he also creates the birds of the heavens, the vault of heavens, which also just includes, generally speaking, it's anything with wings. So then they're supposed to go and uh, they're supposed to multiply according to their kinds. Now, this is incredible here. If you just think about what God is doing and how he really glories over his creation. Um, so he makes, for example, as one children's Bible story book reads, you know, fat fish. Skinny fish, little fish, big fish, you know, oh my, it's like you're, you're sort of meant to say, oh my goodness, look at all the kinds that we know of, and there are even kinds that we don't know of, and then you can think of the birds of the air, for example, the, the, the eagle with a wingspan of up to something like eight feet, which is incredible, and if you see these things soar, you know, they're truly amazing, and then, you know, you go and observe my backyard, by God's grace, in the mornings, uh, you might find a little hummingbird zipping from plant to plant. You know, a wingspan of like three to four inches. All these different kinds. And then all of a sudden he goes to man. And where he says to all the other animals in the world, he says, let them reproduce according to their kinds, that is species. To man he says, let us make man in our image. Incredible, isn't it? And then you have this great creation declaration uh, there in 27. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, it's fascinating that when you read through this Genesis account, he actually, Moses, the author, he actually uses the word creation or created somewhat sparingly. You have basically... Verse 1, he created the heavens and the earth, and then he returns to it in 27, as far as I remember. And you have this creation exclamation, created man, created him, created them. And God delights over his creation, and that's why there in verse 31, go ahead and look there again. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God describes his people as everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. There, that's in Isaiah 43, verse 7. So they are supposed to, they are created for his glory. And so he therefore delights in all of these things. It's kind of like, you know, if you guys have ever seen, uh, you know, if you're, if you're pondering nature and nature's creation, as they go ahead and multiply and fill the earth, you know, like um, uh, that National Geographic special, I think it's by National Geographic, Planet Earth. You guys have seen Planet Earth? At one point in time, they have this bird who is doing this incredible mating dance. And you're just sitting there thinking like, oh my goodness, like, wow, how can that actually be? This is amazing. It looks like a face and it's doing this, this really strange dance to us. And we say, wow. And God responds because he's the one glorying over his creation and delighting in it as it's good, it says. And he says, I know. I made that. Enjoy it. And enjoy it all the more because it ultimately points to God. But it's amazing that when we look at other people, we don't quite say, unfortunately, wow, look at what God has made. And we're going to see why exactly we ought to say that. But God does that nonetheless, even though we might sometimes miss it. Um, it is, I was reminded of uh, how sometimes we do do that. Uh, so, for example, if you guys are in a relationship or if you're married, 
you know, you go you go back to that first time when you saw that girl and you saw that guy and they caught your attention, and you say, "Wow, God made that." <laughs> You're supposed to say, "You know, wow, God is truly amazing." Not only because this person might be physically attractive, but so many other reasons because they're made in the image of God. And again, we're going to go ahead and look and see what that means exactly a little bit later. Um, But do you know how God speaks of how he made man? It's not coldly or in some uninvolved fashion, but with great precision. So you can imagine here the God of heavens, immense and infinite in his power, personally involved in his creation, of his people, even at the earliest stages in the womb. So David writes in Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14, he says, reflecting on his own creation, him being made, he says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And of course, the response then, given those truths, given that God is the one who has formed us, God is the one who has knitted us together in our mother's womb, he says, I... And fearfully and wonderfully made. Incredible here. This speaks directly to those, to all humans, but particularly those who might feel a little bit discouraged and who are seeking to find their identity in themselves for who they think they ought to be and they're failing to do that. Or for those who think that they are something And the ultimate grid that determines their worth is their own grid, as opposed to God's. God says here that people are fearfully and wonderfully made, regardless of everything. You know, another implication of the fact that God has created us is that we are finally accountable to him. We are finally accountable to him, right? The creator owns his creation, and then the creation owes everything it has to its great creator, So practically what this means is that we finally are answerable to God, our great creator. Now in our egalitarian society where we proclaim that uh, everyone is equal in role. Now certainly everyone is equal in value. Um, But here, the egalitarian society says that everyone is equal in role. And so really, even if we had a, a president, for example, or a king, for example... Uh, we would all say that we all share the same role as him, so he is of no greater importance, let's say, uh, than we are. So in the society where we are taught that what is ultimate is your choice, your choice, being accountable to God sounds like slavery, doesn't it? You want to tell me what to do? And therefore, we therefore want to exercise our will and shake off these shackles and do whatever it is that we please. Um, And this sounds like slavery. But the good news is that God is no harsh taskmaster. He is no harsh taskmaster. This here is a God who delights in creating and then delighting in the life of his people. And delighting in his people themselves. So he loves to see life flourish. When it comes to people, he does this by speaking with them. Directing them providing for them you see how he's he's caring for his creation here how he actually cares about life so if god is a god like that who desires all of us to flourish in life which the bible says that god is this god who wouldn't want him over us 
Who wouldn't want a God who is perfect in every single way over us? If God is good, loving, sovereign, righteous, holy, then he exercises his accountability over us in a good, loving, sovereign, righteous, and holy way who always has your best interest in mind. Now, if you're discussing these things with with your non-Christian friend, I mean, how many times uh, does your non-Christian friend actually think that that is the God of the Bible? But it is. And so here we have the opportunity just to show them this is a God who loves life and desires life to thrive. And when you remove authority, all of a sudden, when there is no accountability... Um, And when your ultimate or what is ultimate is your individual choice, you know, the idea of seeing a world thrive all of a sudden becomes like one big game of survivor, right? You remove that loving authority over us. He cares that we all flourish. Let's say right here. He cares that we all flourish. So if we see somebody in need, we all are going to sacrifice to see life flourish, right? Now, you remove that great God and all of his objective truth and the ways in which he wants us to live. All of a sudden, we create our own law, right? I mean, just think about it right here. All of a sudden, you guys are all my competition, right? And so we therefore create our own rules, and it's one big game of survivor. Everyone else does what is convenient to them. So we want this God over us, and he, in fact, is God over us. So the summary there, man is created by God, and man is the culmination of God's creation. The only one made in his image, which brings us to point number two. Man is created in the image of God. I'll go ahead and read 26 and 27 again. Go ahead and look there. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If you were, if you were to go ahead and read the creation account, you'll recognize that nothing else is made in God's image and in God's likeness. And those two words are, mean the same thing, basically. Uh, more or less, they are used interchangeably. If you want to go ahead and look it up later, you can look at chapter 5, verse 1. You can look at 5, verse 3. And then you can look at 9, verse 6. But what does it mean to be made in God's image? To be made in his likeness, that seems plain enough. We are made like him. Image means to carve or to cut out. So if I were to make a carving of a bald eagle that I saw, if I was even competent enough to do that, that image would reflect the real thing, right? And without the real thing, there is no image. The image images the real thing. Pictures do the same thing today. You know, the way in which our minds work with pictures is is incredible. You know, you can think of your loved one. And if that loved one has pride of place in your heart, you might put that person's picture on your mantle for everyone to see. But really, all it is is just a flimsy piece of paper, right? But once you slap an image on that piece of paper and you walk by it, you start thinking about all these incredible memories that you have. Just because you're looking visually at this image that represents the real thing. It isn't the real thing, but it represents the real thing. 
you might think about all the quirky things that that loved one did, the way that that person sought and seeks to love you, where that person is right now. You might think about the hopes for this person. You might have a great deep longing for this person. The, the image images the real thing, and it is nothing without the real thing. So we are to do with God, incredibly, isn't it? Humans are made in the image of God. We are to image God in the world. And so, if we, so for people, um, theologians and Christians who have been thinking about this, what exactly does this mean? They have long called man God's representatives. And as God has given us pride of place amongst his creation, we therefore are sort of on the mantle of creation, the mantle of the earth. And we are to cast everyone's mind, even one another's, back to our great God, the living God who made us. How is it that we represent him? Uh, you know, there's ways that we don't represent him. For, so, for example, God is all-powerful. We, therefore, are not to, to represent his omnipotence. Same thing when it goes to the fact that he is all-knowing or all-present. So what exactly do we make of this representation? Keep in mind, here, this is your task. How are you to represent God here on earth? What do we make of this representation? Well, I think this representation is filled out as we move forward in this passage. Um, so we have capacities for creativity. Right? God is a creative God. And as we saw earlier, you know, God creates the birds of the skies, the sea creatures of the waters, the domestic animals, that is the livestock, and then all the creeping little things. You think about all those little creepy things that some of us might really enjoy or some of us might get really freaked out about. Um, but he, God is greatly creative. Uh, now, of course, I'm not saying that animals or insects cannot make creative things Things that make us go, wow, you know, that is incredible. So there's this video that was circulating about these termites. You guys see this video? And the termites, uh, they go ahead and build their colony underground in all the passageways. And then they fill it with some sort of chemical fluid. Uh, and then they excavate it. So at the end, you're left looking at this massive colony, you know, 15 feet wide or whatever. 50 feet, sometimes these, bran these uh, branches of the tunnels can go. And you sit there and you think, oh my goodness. So they create things. that they, they make some pretty cool stuff. But nothing like man. You know, the termites, that is all they do. All they do is create this thing. But you think about the capacities of man. Right? We make something, and then we turn that into a cooler thing. And then we turn that into a cooler thing, and then into a cooler thing. So this, this capacity for creativity, right? You know, you can imagine man strolling out there. And at one point in time, they, they recognize that it is the moon up there. And they think, that is amazing. It gives us light because it reflects the light of the sun. And by which we therefore see a little bit at nighttime. And it reflects God's glory. And then at some point in time, man goes, I want to step on that thing. And then he creates an airplane. After tries and tries and, and trials and crashes and crashes and crashes. And then finally they succeed. And then they say, I want to make a jet airplane and attach engines to this thing. And then they say, I want to make this thing go as fast as possible. And then they make stealth bombers and things like that. And then they say, I want to step on the, that thing so badly that I create a rocket ship and a spaceship that actually flies me out there. This is incredible. Termites. <laughs> Termites build tunnels. 
Man builds rocket ships that takes us thousands and thousands of miles away so that we can step on the moon. And then not only that, right, capacities for creativity. Uh, you think about the capacities for problem solving. So I was reading about Apollo, uh, I think it was Apollo 13, where they call that the, 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 the most successful failure of a space mission ever. They get launched up there. Eventually, the, 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 the thing that houses the, the gasoline explodes. And then what are they supposed to do? They basically, if they don't escape in this little pod, they die. And so they climb into this little pod, which I think, if I remember correctly, has enough um, oxygen and whatnot, enough food stored in there to last them, I believe it might have been, let's say, two days. But they have to come up with a plan to fling themselves around the moon in this little pod, a journey that takes four days instead of two days. And so they're, they're in this little pod running out of all, this, all their oxygen and all their supplies, barely surviving, barely conscious, and they're sitting there having to do math and calculations because if they don't enter into Earth at the right degree, they die. And we're talking about a few degrees off, and all they have to do is work off of their eyes, what they see. So you see man's capacities to create and problem solve. It's incredible. And of course, we know that they, they eventually come back to Earth and they are okay. There we have capacities for creation. Incredible. It, it distinguishes us from, let's say, the termites. Uh, we also have capacities for establishing and maintaining relationships. Capacities for maintaining and establishing relationships. Or establishing and maintaining. Um, so after all, what follows on the heel of this great creation exclamation, right? Let us make man in our image. And then 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. So right automatically, you're, the creation, God's first people are created in community. And it actually reflects God, who in many ways is community as well. Did you notice that? That strange language, let us make man in our image, it says in 27, after our likeness. So a lot of people have wondered, okay, what exactly does this mean, this let us type of language? And some people, they might want to say, okay, you know, I don't like this, this, this three-in-one God thing, this Trinity thing. So maybe it's just a royal we, like Queen, Queen Victoria, who is known to say, you know, we are not amused, uh, when really she's talking about herself. But, but, but when um, someone sitting on the throne is speaking, they're supposed to use this plural, even though it really is themselves. Is that what's going on here? Well, I think the answer is no. Because already in creation, in Genesis 1 verse 2, you go back, go back there. 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2, the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we see something here. Of what is eventually developed as the doctrine that we now know and call the doctrine of the Trinity. So this is not a royal we. Some other people say too, okay, God is talking to the angels. But nowhere in the Bible is God, is, uh, does God consult the angels and ask for their opinion and join in something that he's doing such as creation. Though it is slight, what we see here is the doctrine of the Trinity in seed form. And as time goes on and as God reveals himself over and over again, 
it then grows into the tree that we observe and that we know now as the Trinity. So, for example, the passage that uh, Oscar read for us earlier, Colossians 1. Go ahead and turn back there. Colossians chapter 1. Here we're using the Bible to interpret the Bible. So incredibly helpful. And God intended it to be that way. So you go to Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 16 of chapter 1. It says, For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And then, of course, John 1, which we looked at uh, a number of weeks ago, it says that Jesus was there in the beginning with God and was, in fact, God. So we see here that man being made in the image of God is a relational being with great relational capacities. After all, you know, the, people have asked the question, what was God doing before creation? That's a question that theologians have asked before. What was God doing before creation? You know, was he twiddling his thumbs, figuring out, oh, you know, what should we do today? Well, there was relational capacities even before creation. So John 17, 24 says this. He says, Father, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, that, that, that this is people, he, he wants them to be, he says, I want them to be with me where I am. To see my glory, now get this, this is what I want to draw your attention to. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So before the earth was the earth and the universe was the universe, what was God doing before the creation of the world? He was loving the sun. Now that's odd for us to think about, but if you go back into eternity before time, what's God doing? He's loving his son, and the son is loving the father, and both of them actually are glorifying one another. That's relational capacities right there, loving one another. And so we, as being made in the image of God, we are to reflect God's capacity for relationship. And he wants us to use our relational capacities and to direct people's minds back to him. And we also are to help one another do this too, in our relational capacities, to encourage people to think after, think God's thoughts after him, to love what he loves and hate what he hates. <clears throat> now, of course, animals have relational capacities. Animals have relational capacities. So I saw this other video. Um, you know, all I do is sit there and watch these Facebook videos, right? Uh, there's this one where this uh, lioness, uh, she's, she's going to eat this monkey. And she's chasing after this monkey and this around this tree thing. And then somehow the monkey gets away. But then the lion realizes that the monkey has left her baby behind. And you would think that this vicious animal that we understand is vicious uh, would go ahead and eat the baby, right? Because she is trying to eat this other monkey but she actually picks it up and starts licking it she climbs up into her tree she sets her down and sort of nuzzles with this monkey and then hours later you know the monkey's about to fall off the tree because it's a baby monkey and then she sort of picks it back up and tries to 
actually uh, encourage it in its health. Eventually, unfortunately, the monkey dies. But there, you know, there are relational capacities. Like my lizards, you know, sometimes they do things that might reveal relational capacities. Maybe. <laughs> um, but nothing is compared to the re- relational capacities of man. I mean, you guys think about how our conscience is relationally wired. Our conscience is relationally wild, uh, wired like we actually feel bad about hurting other people's feelings. Right? And we're not talking about the person's person, like their body, their physical stuff. We're talking about their feelings, something that you can't really see. Um, and eventually we want to apologize to these people so that things are okay between us, where things are good between individuals. Now, you don't see that in nature. You don't see a great white after it's chopped down a person feeling remorse over what he's done. Now, you might see that, but you know where you see that? You actually see that in cartoons, in fiction. So you guys seen uh, Finding Nemo? One part that is so hilarious. How many of you guys have seen Finding Nemo? Okay, one part that makes the, the movie so hilarious is that eventually, it's a story about how this fish gets lost and then the father fish needs to go find the sunfish. And eventually, as they're making their trek to Australia, they come across these sharks, right? A great white, you got a hammerhead, and then some other crazy-looking shark. Um, and at one point in time, these three sharks are having something like the equivalent of an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. But instead, they're, what they're trying to uh, rid themselves of is their desire to eat fish. And what makes it so funny is that here are these, 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 this shark, these three sharks, and somehow they've sprung a conscience... And this is their motto that opens their AA meeting or their Fish Anonymous meeting. Is that they say, I am a nice shark, not a mindless eating machine. If I am to change this image, I must first change myself. Fish are friends, not food. And at one point in time, the fish go crazy and the sharks are trying to eat the fish because, you know, they come over a spell. What makes it so funny is that here you have these vicious creatures and all of a sudden they've sprung a conscience. That happens in cartoons, not in reality. So only man here has been endowed with great, great relational capacities that really reflect the really reflect our God and Creator. Another thing that helps us understand what it means to be made in God's image is that we have a capacity for morality and righteousness, knowing good for wrong from wrong, for example. So God goes on before sin, before sin happens, He gives. Adam and Eve a command and the expectation is that they would actually fulfill the command they know what is good and what is wrong they have a capacity for morality and righteousness I was watching another uh, video <laughs> and there's these monkeys okay <laughs> these monkeys they go and rob the farmer's corn I think this is taking place in Afghanistan or something and the little kids are said they're supposed to guard the cornfields right the point is that monkeys They don't have respect for other people's boundaries. It's not like they have a capacity for morality or righteousness. They're not going to be repenting of stealing other people's grain. Man here holds a unique capacity as being the only thing in creation made in the image of God. And so you get beautiful poetry like this. Psalm 8 verses 4 to 6. This year's, the psalmist says, when I look at your heavens, so we're supposed to imagine ourselves, let's say, in front of the Grand Canyon, looking at this vast expanse, this vast hole in the ground, and beholding the starry night. 
When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Right, this is supposed to evoke humility or a certain, he's supposed to feel humbled. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? In comparison to this vast universe, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And you crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the words, works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. A little lower than the angels, the heavenly beings, it says. One person wrote this, the entire world is a revelation of God. A mirror of his virtues and perfection. Every creature, every creature, even the little creepy things that creep on the face of the earth. Every creature is in his own way and according to his own measure an embodiment of divine thought. But according, but among all creatures, only man is the image of God. The highest and richest revelation of God and therefore head and crown of the entire creation. So being made in the image of God makes us different from the animals. And because we are made in the image of God, we therefore have great worth and dignity. There is sanctity in life. That is why actually when one person murders another person made in God's image, there ought to be great consequences. So in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6, this is what God says. He says this to Noah. To, uh, no, Noah, he says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. So then, okay, the question then is, well, why? Why is it that when one man sheds the blood of another man, murders him, by man shall his blood be shed? Why is that? Does he say? It's because it's dangerous to society. Because we hurt other people's feelings. No, he doesn't say those things, even though those things are true. He says, because... God made man in his own image. There's great worth. And so when one man sheds the blood of another man, by man shall his blood be shed because he is made in the image of God. Being made in the image of God here is supposed to inform how we treat one another. Whether in this church or in society at large. How we protect life even. This is why Christians believe that the murder of a person and the killing of the unborn is sin. And here the Bible tells us that what overrides our desires, our individual choices to do what we want is God. Now, last week I mentioned that uh, the philosophies of Germany during Hitler's time allowed for Germany and, and the Third Reich to execute people who they deemed less worthy. Less worthy. So this, what this practically looked like is they looked at the Jews and they said, less worthy, we therefore can annihilate them. They looked at those with disabilities and they said, okay, well, we therefore determine what is worthy and what is not worthy and we execute them. And so what happened, obviously in World War II, is the execution, the murdering of millions of Jews. And then when it come, came to folks with disabilities, they literally would bring them into um, a chamber, basically like a room, and gas those that they thought were not as valuable. 
Those people included those with disabilities. Those people included also the elderly. They weren't so useful after all, they said. And, you know, we think that we are over this type of thinking, don't we? We think that the world has sort of arrived to this point where we no longer are like that. But there is a um, bioethicist at Princeton University. Now, we all might say, oh, wow, you know, the glorious Princeton University. It's an Ivy League school. But they have this ethicist who really believes similar things. And he believes that, you know, not only are fetuses um, not people, but also newborn babies are not people. They don't have the claim, the right to life as people do, as we do. Because, you know, they they don't really have a self-consciousness. They're not really anticipating the future. They don't really have a claim for, let's say, something like happiness or personhood. They, therefore, Peter Singer says, this ethicist at Princeton University who teaches there, they, therefore, say, the newborn baby's life is as important and of the same value as a pig. And so naturally, what this leads to is what? Not only can you get rid of a fetus who isn't a person, but he argues, therefore, that the same applies to, let's say, a newborn infant. We are not beyond these things that man has seen over the last hundred years. In fact, man has been exactly the same. That is ruled by sin, exercising their manhood and their womanhood and their dominion in a very bad way because they have stepped out from God and his plan and his will. Being made in the image of God is supposed to inform how we are to care for other people. You know, um, what has led us to do this, these things, is really sin. God has created man, his creation, to be in relationship with him. Again, he is all holy, all just, he's perfect, he's sovereign, he's righteous, always good, always loving, always defending his character, which is always all those things. Always good. But man then has stepped out from underneath this rule and wanted his own authority. Now, if we are not good, not always righteous, not always holy, not always just, what then is our rule going to look like? It's going to be marked with imperfection and riddled with imperfection throughout. And so in the fall of man, the image of God is perverted. It's perverted. And in fact, our rebellion against God has earned us condemnation and judgment and eventually judgment in hell. So the question then, you know, I'm sure you guys know, even this morning, even this weekend, you guys have probably exercised rule in such a way that reminded you, I am imperfect. And maybe you have had to have your spouse or your friend or your roommate remind you of that. But without doubt, it is imperfect. So then the question is, what does it look like to perfectly image God. What does it look like to image God? Because that, as Christians, we want. We want to be back under God's rule, experiencing God's blessing, and living by His command. And God gives us clarity by God's grace. And He points us towards Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15 Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's not made in the likeness of, but He is it. The firstborn over all creation, that is the one who have the right, that is the one who has the rights over all things. Verse 19 of Colossians 1 says that all of God's fullness was pleased to dwell in him, 
And in Christ we find our example. Capacities for creativity. He is the one through whom the world was created. Relational capacities. He's the second person of the Trinity. In perfect relationship with the Father and at all times. Not only was he in perfect relationship with the Father, but his mission of coming to die for sinners on the cross and bearing our sin and the wrath that we deserved was grounded or it was based in the desire to see other people in perfect relationship with their God. He is the ultimate peacemaker, making peace between God and those who had rebelled against him. His work is a work of reconciliation, the work of atonement or bringing two things at one, at one mint. Still thinking relationally, right? He images the image of God, the great compassionate one. So Psalm 49 speaks of a God who has eyes and ears. Of course, we know that God is a spirit who does not have a body like us. Uh, But it says that he has ears and eyes with which he hears the cries of the destitute, with which he sees the plight of his people. And so Jesus, when he is, when he comes along after he's taken on flesh, he uses his ears and his eyes to do good things that displays the compassionate God. So he comes to the crowds and he recognizes that they are, he sees them and he recognizes that they are like sheep without a shepherd and Jesus has compassion. When he hears the blinds pleas for mercy in Matthew 9, they're pleading for him, have mercy on us. He hears them, and then he moves and he saves. Capacity for righteousness. The Bible says that Jesus himself is the righteous one. 1 Peter 1.18, you can look at 1 John 2, chapter, uh, 2, verse 1. And he perfectly obeyed the Father's will, receiving God's commands and fulfilling them with joy. He is the righteous one. Jesus is not merely in the likeness of God, but he is the image of God, and he is Our example. So if you are a believer, God is conforming you into the image of his son, his word says. That's what he's doing for all of us. The image of his son. And though we were poor representatives of God, though we are poor representatives of God, God is determined to see that man would reflect all of his good glory. Man is created by God. He is created by God in his own image. And we see that man is charged to rule. He's charged by God. This is point number three. God puts man over the earth. This man, keep in mind, is made in God's image. And then he puts him over the earth, over every sphere of God's creation. The fish, the birds, the livestock, all the creeping things. And God is over us. And then he puts man over everything else. And he says, multiply and subdue the earth. Look there in 28 here. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This here is no call to abuse the earth, to abuse the animals, to suck out its resources, the earth's resources. We are called to care for it, as it says in 2.15. We are called to work it and tend to it so that it would go on and produce more fruit. This here is called the cultural mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, live in society. It's called the cultural mandate. Where we really, as those made in the image of God, are called to create a culture that reflects really 
the ways and will of God and the character of God himself. We're charged to develop a God-glorifying culture. Keep in mind, as men are made in the image of God, designed to image him, the real one, to everything and everyone. So the question for us today is, what kind of culture are you creating as you exercise dominion and rule and carry out the responsibilities God has given you in the spheres that God has placed you in? So think about your family. Think about your work. Think about church here. Is it a God-given culture that you are building? Is your end, the end of your labor, to cultivate this God-glorifying culture? With all of the abilities that you have given, with your intellect, with your relational capacities, with your creative capacities, with your capacities for morality and righteousness that God has given you, do you use those To please God or do you use those things to do whatever it is that you want? Do you submit your energies, all of them, your whole selves, to the service of God, to his rule, in his stead, so that others would catch a glimpse of his character? To not do so, did you know, is sin. Living for ourselves, autonomy, living apart from God. It's rebellion against God, the Bible says. This is what R.C. Sproul says. Living for ourselves is really setting up ourselves in opposition to the one to whom we owe everything. It is an insult to his holiness. We become false witnesses to God when we sin as the image bearers of God. We are saying to the whole creation, to all of nature under our dominion, to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. This is how God is. This is how your creator behaves. Look in the mirror. Look at us and you will see the character of the almighty We say to the world, God is covetous. We say God is ruthless. We say God is bitter. God is a murderer, a thief, a slanderer, an adulterer. God is all of these things that we are doing. Now, even at best, even if you say, well, I don't do those things. Maybe you just don't talk at all. Maybe you just don't speak about spiritual things, whether at the church or whether in family And then you actually say that God is a God who does not care. He's a God that doesn't think about these things. He's a God who does not take initiative to really speak his truth to his people. So the question for us is what kind of culture are we creating? Uh, Before we move on to the last and final and brief point, I do want to note that here... Man is tasked with actual work. Before sin, man is given the charge to work. So you know what this does? This tells us when I don't want to go to my job at mon- on Monday at 8.30 in the morning, this tells us that we are actually to be diligent at what we do and to resist all of those thoughts that say, oh, you know, I just can't wait till Friday because then I really live. God here God gave Adam and Eve genuine work to do. They were supposed to work it and keep it. Therefore, work can actually be a very, very good thing. In the New Testament, it affirms this. Ephesians 4.28 says, let the thief no longer steal. So here, you know, this thief is probably lazy, we would assume. And then it says, but rather let him labor. This is this former thief who's now been converted to Christianity. But rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. So that, here's the purpose, God glorifying culture here. 
so that they may have something to share with anyone in need. First man is created by God. Second man is created in the image of God. Third man is charged by God. And fourth man is provided for by God. This may seem self-evident. After all, God created man. Then God gave him his mission. And then it might be natural that man is dependent on God. But God reminds us of this fact. Uh, Look there in 29 and 30. He creates man. He gives him his task. And then he says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath, I have given every green plant for food. You see that I have given? He gives, he provides for man. In fact, he provides for all of his living creatures. The biblical worldview affirms that we are absolutely dependent on God's sovereign grace for all of our existence, whether it be the beginning, God creating us, whether it be God's sovereign grace for our continued sustenance as God provides And especially dependent on God's sovereign grace for our deliverance. As he sends Jesus Christ, the one who is the image of God. The one who is our great example. The one who accomplishes our salvation by taking on our sin and our wrath. So that we might be in relationship with God and declared right and just in his sight. That is our God. If you don't believe those things, the question is why not? And he calls us to repent and believe and to exercise your personhood in a way that glorifies him. Man is created by God. Man is created in the image of God. Man is charged by God. And fourth, man is provided for by God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you as the great creator. Lord Jesus, we praise you for being the one through whom everything was created and for whom everything was created. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you recreate, that the Spirit or that the Son and the Father are sent or send you out so that you might recreate our hearts, so that you would give us new hearts that desire to do your will and love you and obey you. Lord, we confess that oftentimes we exercise rule and dominion in a way that reflects nothing but the father of lies. So Lord, we help, we pray that you would help us by the power of your spirit to exercise our rule in such a way that images you the real, the only, the true, the living God to one another, but then also to the folks that we live around, especially here in Hacienda Heights as we gather as a body. Lord, we pray that you would help us image you to the people around here, even as we go to lunch and as we go and get gas and speak to the attendants and speak to the people who are serving us, speak to the waitresses and the cashier folks. We pray, Lord, that in all of our interactions, we would be imaging you and and be holding out the great gospel of truth, the news that you can save in Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.